Let's start this morning with a brief review. Last week we looked at two of the absolutely certain signs of the end of the world according to St. Robert Bellarmine. The gospel must be preached in the whole world. The Roman Empire must be terminated. We spent some time considering the meaning of the termination of the Roman Empire relying on the commentary of Cardinal Manning. We saw that the manifestation of Antichrist has been hindered by a system or a man. We saw that the system hindering the manifestation of Antichrist was initially the political might of the heathen Roman Empire, which was then lifted up and spiritualized by the spiritual power of the Church penetrating through the Empire and finally was crowned with Christendom, the great family of Christian nations, which assumed the place of the Roman Empire. We saw that the Holy Father, the very authority under whom and around whom the whole family of Christian nations were gathered, was the man who had hindered the manifestation of the Antichrist. We saw that only two possible societies, the natural society, with a political order established without reference to our Lord's incarnation, and the supernatural society, with a political order which is faithful to the teaching of the Catholic Church. And we also saw that once a supernatural society admits those who deny the incarnation to an equality of privileges, then the whole foundation of the social life and order of that society drops from the supernatural level to the level of mere nature. And we saw that this was precisely what was foretold of the anti-Christian period. We saw that the manifestation of Antichrist cannot occur till this great revolt, this great apostasy of the Catholic nations defecting from the true faith, plunging from the supernatural order to the natural order, plunging from a political order based on the incarnation of our Lord to a political order which is not based on the incarnation. We saw that once this occurs, the nations will no longer have any unified principle of law and order. We saw that once this apostasy reaches its climax, that is to say, once the formerly Catholic nations have left their unity with the Holy Father and their foundation in the true faith, then there will no longer remain any bulwark or security to prevent the rising up of social disorder and lawlessness. And then in that context of chaos and immorality, the man of sin, the lawless one, Antichrist, will become manifest. We saw that because the power which has hindered the development of the anti-Christian social disorder is divine, that it cannot be taken away simply by the rebellious will of men until the hour that's ordained by God. We saw that at the end of the world, at the end of the world, the Roman Empire shall pass into democracies. We saw that according to the fathers at that time, the Gentile nations will reject Catholicism, leave the worship of the true God, and turn back to paganism. That's where we left off last week. Let's start today by taking an extremely brief look at some of what St. Robert has summarized about the man of sin. St. Robert says that the Antichrist is a man, one man according to Scripture and all the fathers. He states that there are two most certain facts about him. First, he is principally coming for the Jews and will be received by them as the Messiah, as was stated by our Lord to the Jews, you have rejected me, but another will come in his own name, and him you will not reject. St. Robert points out that this is taught by all the fathers and by St. Paul as well in Second Thessalonians 2.10 and 11. According to St. Robert, the second most certain fact is Antichrist will be born of Jewish stock, be circumcised, and observe the Sabbath at least for a time. St. Robert also points out a fearful symmetry. Quote, Without a doubt, the Antichrist will first attract those who are prepared to receive him. 
And the Jews expect a temporal messianic king of such a kind as the Antichrist will be. Just as Christ first came to the Jews, to whom he was promised and by whom he was expected, and then later he joined the Gentiles to himself, so also the Antichrist will first go to the Jews, by whom he is expected, and then later, one after another, he will subject all the Gentiles to himself. Close quote. Parenthetical note. Subjecting the Gentiles to himself may be far easier for the Antichrist than it sounds. In fact, uh, it looks like many are specifically looking forward to his coming. For example, the Muslims who don't believe our Lord died on the cross are expecting our Lord to come back and break the cross. The Buddhists, and oddly enough, many New Agers, are looking forward to what appears to be the last incarnation of the Buddha, someone they call the Lord Maitreya. And the dispensational Protestants are expecting our Lord to return and rule from the temple in Jerusalem. Sounds like a whole raft of sitting ducks. Let's continue. St. Robert points out that the Antichrist is not the devil incarnate because only God can take on another nature. The devil has an angelic nature, so he can't become incarnate. He can only possess a man. But as St. Robert notes, quote, he will be the most perfect instrument of the devil, so that in him is the bodily expression of all possible diabolical malice, just as in Christ our Lord was a bodily expression of all divine goodness. Close quote. We all know that the number of his name is 666. St. Robert quotes St. Irenaeus at some length on this topic. Now, St. Irenaeus states that the name of the Antichrist is a secret kept by God until he arrives, since he isn't worthy to have his name pre-announced by heaven. According to St. Irenaeus, St. John the Apostle warned that no one should attempt to guess this name from the number 666, and that those who do attempt to guess this will be easily deceived by him when he arrives under his own name, since they will not be on their guard against him. As to the seat of Antichrist, where will he rule? St. Paul wrote that the Antichrist would take his seat in the temple of God, claiming himself to be God. What is meant here? This is a very interesting discussion. We can only touch it briefly. St. Robert gives two possibilities. The first possibility is Rome. As that great doctor St. Jerome says, He shall sit in the temple of God, either Jerusalem as some think, or in the church as is more truly thought. Close quote. Ecumenus, who says, quote, he did not see the temple of Jerusalem but the church of Christ, close quote. So Rome is one possibility. The other possibility is Jerusalem. As St. Robert states, quote, but nevertheless, the true opinion is that the Antichrist should rule from Jerusalem, not from Rome, from the temple of Solomon and the throne of David, and not the temple of St. Peter and the Apostolic See, close quote. St. Robert supports this argument using both scripture and tradition, showing that this is the common teaching of the fathers, even showing that elsewhere St. Jerome has written of the Antichrist being in Jerusalem. He points out that none of the ancient fathers, either Latin or Greek, used the word temple for Christian churches, nor was this word used by the apostles for that purpose. St. Robert quotes Lactantius, who states that after the termination of the Roman Empire, during the time of the Antichrist, the supreme rule will pass over to Asia, and the Orient will dominate while the West is in servitude. Lactantius clearly states in what part of Asia the Antichrist shall rule. That's Syria. A particular part of Syria, now remember, this is the ancient uh, Latin terminology. The particular part of Syria uh, in which the Antichrist shall be is Judea. St. Robert also discusses the teaching of the Antichrist and points out four major doctrines. 
First, he will deny that Jesus is the Christ, as we read in 1 John 2.22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denieth the Father and the Son. Therefore, he will attack everything our Savior instituted, such as baptism, confirmation, and so forth. He shall teach the Jewish laws, such as circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, and ancient ceremonies have not ceased, but still have force. Second, he will assert that he himself is the true Christ promised in the Law and Prophets, as we read in John chapter 5, and verse 43. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Third, he will proclaim himself to be God and wish to be worshipped as God, as we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. So he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. And finally, he will proclaim that not only is he God, but also that he is the only God, and he will attack all other gods, both the true God and all the false gods, even the idols, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And in Daniel 11, And he shall make no account of the God of his fathers, and he shall not regard any gods, for he shall rise up against all things. St. Robert speaks of the satanic powers of the Antichrist and points out that it is clearly taught in both Scripture in the 24th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel and the 13th chapter of the Apocalypse and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as well as tradition, that the Antichrist will possess quasi-miraculous powers of satanic origin. And by these diabolical powers, he will perform many miracles which appear to be miraculous. He will appear to raise the dead and heal the sick, but these will be demonic illusions. They will not be true healings. His marvels will all have natural causes, but these will be hidden from men, and so they will appear to be miraculous. St. Robert comments on the 13th chapter of the Apocalypse, where the dragon gives his power and throne great authority to the beast. And then one of the heads of the beast has a mortal wound, but the wound is healed, which makes the whole world follow the beast with great wonder. One of the heads of the beast has a mortal wound. The wound is healed, which makes the whole world follow the beast with great wonder. St. Robert explains this passage about the beast's head having a mortal wound, which is then healed. Quote, Nearly all the ancient fathers explain this of the Antichrist himself, who will fake his own death, and then by diabolical powers raise himself up again, so that he might imitate the true death and resurrection of Christ, and by this means seduce many. Close quote. All the fathers teach that the Antichrist will be the most incredible magician. He will be possessed by the devil from his very conception, or at least by his infancy, and the Antichrist will perform all his marvels by satanic power. St. Cyril states that the Antichrist will be the most highly instructed magician, learned in witchcraft, spells, and the black arts, and his marvels are called lying wonders because they are performed by the father of lies. So we've seen a few more details about the Antichrist. He'll be possessed, at least since his infancy. He'll be learned in all the occult arts, sorcery, incantations, all the black arts. Because of his incredible powers of satanic origin, he'll be able to perform many incredible things which will seem like true miracles to men. But why will the Antichrist perform all these miracles? St. Robert notes that the purpose of all these fake satanic wonders will be so that he can prove that he is God, just as Christ our Lord did true miracles to demonstrate his divinity. So he'll do this miracle so he can convince everybody he's the Christ, so he can convince everybody that he is God. Now that we have a general outline of the character of the Antichrist himself, 
Let's tune to two, the two absolutely certain signs which accompany the Antichrist. The preaching of Enoch and Elias, that's Elijah, and the savage persecution and ending of all public masses. First, the preaching of Enoch and Elias. Elias and Elijah, just two different ways of saying the same name. Enoch is a great-grandpa of Noah. We can read about him in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 5. He was taken up. Elias is the prophet who, is all we, know, we all know, was taken up in the chariot of fire. Neither of these men have died yet. As St. Robert points out, Scripture proves that these two prophets still live and will return. They will return to preach against the Antichrist. Enoch will preach to the Gentiles and Elias to the Jews. They will both preach and perform miracles, convincing many to reject the Antichrist and return to the Holy Faith. St. Robert teaches that it is heresy or proximate heresy to deny that Enoch and Elijah are personally going to return to oppose the, man, the, the Antichrist. Thanks to Elias' preaching, the Jews will largely convert. St. Robert, quote, Enoch and Elias will come again. They are still alive, and the reason they are still living is that they will oppose the Antichrist when he comes, and they will conserve the elect in the faith of Christ, and indeed they will convert the Jews. And this is obvious in the words, and he shall restore all things. For to restore all things means to call all Jews and heretics, and perhaps many Catholics who have been deceived by the Antichrist, true the true faith. Close quote, St. Robert. Then Enoch and Elias will be killed in Jerusalem and lay in the street for three days, while the forces of evil rejoice with satanic glee. But then to the horror of the followers of the Antichrist, both Enoch and Elias will be resurrected and then assumed into heaven, which St. John refers to in the 11th chapter of the Apocalypse. I'll read an abbreviated version of that, uh, that section. Apocalypse 11, 3 and following. And I will give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred sixty days clothed in sackcloth. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city, where their Lord also was crucified. And the nations shall see their bodies for three days and a half, and they shall not suffer their bodies to be laid in sepulchres. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life of, of God from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them that saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Close quote, the Holy Ghost. So Enoch and Elias are still alive. They're coming back during the reign of the Antichrist to oppose him with preaching and miracles to convert the Jews who will finally become Catholics also to convert heretics and Catholics who have been duped by the Antichrist. They will be killed and laid out in the streets of Jerusalem. After three days, they will be raised from the dead and assumed into heaven. Now let's turn to the second absolutely certain sign which accompanies the Antichrist, the savage persecution and ending of all public masses. St. Robert, quote, Absolutely all the evil men together shall be in the army of the Antichrist and shall with open authority attack all the saints of the church. Nowadays, there are many men who pretend to be in the church, who conceal their malice, whose hearts are outside the church, although their bodies remain inside. But at that time, as St. Augustine says, their hidden hatred shall all break out in open persecution. Close quote. And how vicious will this persecution be? 
St. Augustine says during the time of the Antichrist, the devil should be loosed, and therefore the persecution will be that much greater than all the preceding persecutions in history. This persecution, occurring while a final judgment is imminent, shall be the last which will be endured by the Holy Church throughout the world, the whole city of Christ being assailed by the whole city of the devil as each exists on earth. St. Hippolytus and St. Cyril say that the martyrs killed by the Antichrist will be more glorious than all the preceding martyrs because all the martyrs before the time of the Antichrist had to battle against human ministers of the devil, but these last martyrs shall have to fight against the raging devil himself. St. Robert makes three points concerning the passage in the 20th chapter of the Apocalypse which describes the attack of Gog and Magog on the saints. First, the battle of Gog and Magog is actually the battle of the Antichrist against the church, the very last persecution which the Antichrist will raise up against the church all over the world. That's the first point. second point St. Robert makes is it is very probable that Gog signifies the Antichrist himself and Magog signifies his army. And the third point, the Antichrist army, Magog, has a strange name because of the people who are in the army. So what does it mean? Well, in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, there's a list of the descendants of Noah after the flood. It's a list known as the Table of Nations, and the name Magog is found in there. Magog is the father of a people traditionally known as the Scythians. Scythia, the homeland of the Scythians, is an ancient term for a region of Europe and Asia north of the Black and Caspian Seas, stretching from the Danube to China. It's what we now know as Kazakhstan, southern Russia, the Ukraine, and the surrounding regions. St. Robert says that, quote, the army of the Antichrist is called Magog because the greater part of the Antichrist army will either be established from barbarians arising from Scythia, such as, such as the Turks, the Tartars, and others, or what I think is more probable, because the army shall be immensely savage and cruel, close quote. And for the ending of the public mass, quote, the persecution of the Antichrist will be the most severe and the most notorious so that all public religious ceremonies and sacrifices will cease. That this final persecution will be the most violent is obvious from the words of our Lord in Matthew twenty four twenty one. For there shall be then great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world, neither shall be. Close quote, St. Robert. Quote, In the time of the Antichrist, because of the horrible persecution, the public and daily, public and daily office and sacrifice of the church will cease as Daniel clearly teaches in chapter 12 and verse 11. And from the time when the continual sacrifice be taken away, there should be 1,290 days. The consensus of all the fathers is that in this place Daniel is speaking of the time of the Antichrist. And what this passage means is that the Antichrist will prohibit all divine worship, which is now practiced in the Church of Christ, and most especially he will prohibit the most holy sacrifice, the Mass. Close quote, Cardinal Bellarine. So the persecution of the Antichrist will be the last persecution in the world and savage beyond all uh, possible previous persecutions. In case uh, anybody might wonder why, it's because purgatory ends on Judgment Day, and so all the saints that are alive at the end of the world have to get their purgatory time uh, done before death, and that's why God allows the Antichrist to be so savage, so they get their suffering done right away, because there is no purgatory once judgment comes. The army of the Antichrist will be made up largely of men from the barbarian tribes of Central Asia or of men whose cruelty will be comparable. The attacks will be so violent that all public ceremonies of the Catholic Church, including the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, will cease. There are two signs which fall upon the rule of the Antichrist, the destruction of the Antichrist and the end of the world. We'll set aside the end of the world to a later date because there's far too much to cover today. And so we'll end today by looking at the destruction of the Antichrist. 
St. Robert teaches that the length of time the Antichrist will rule the world is clear from chapters 7 and 12 of Daniel and chapters 11, 12, and 13 of the Apocalypse. The Antichrist will rule the world for 3.5 years. And explains the reason why the time the two witnesses, Enoch and Elias, will be 1260 days, while the time the Antichrist will be 1290 days. The Antichrist rule will be 30 days longer, since he will rule for another month after he kills Enoch and Elias. St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Gregory the Great, and St. Thomas say that at this time the Antichrist will go to Mount Olivet. Then, in a totally blasphemous imitation of the ascension of Christ our Lord, the Antichrist, by the power of Satan, will ascend into the air pretending that he is returning to heaven. So he'll be lifted up by the demons, and everybody will be admiring him as he rises up and acclaiming him as God. But suddenly, by the order of Christ our Lord, St. Michael will knock him out of the air. He'll fall to the earth, which will swallow him up, just as it did the men who rebelled against Moses, and he'll fall down into hell. And thus the terrible end of the Antichrist. The fathers teach that about a month and a half after the death of Antichrist, our Lord will come in judgment. But that's a topic for another day. Okay, let's review. Today we look, took a quick look at the son of perdition. He'll be Jewish, observe the Jewish laws at least for some time. He will not be the devil incarnate, but he will be possessed in the most perfect bodily instrument of Satan. Although the number of his name is 666, we've been explicitly forbidden from guessing who he might be using this number in order to, end up, in order to avoid winding up as one of his followers. He'll apparently rule the world from Jerusalem. He'll deny that Jesus is the Christ, and institute Jewish laws. He will proclaim himself to be Christ and God and will be demanded to be worshipped as such and will attack all the other gods, even the true God. He'll be a master of the black arts, a sorcerer like none that has ever lived, consecrated to Satan from his conception or infancy, raised up and tutored and skilled in all the satanic arts of magic, incantations, and such like. He'll have apparently miraculous powers of satanic origin, all of which are lies, but which include the ability to heal the sick and apparently even raise the dead. He'll apparently raise himself from the dead. He'll perform all these marvels with one goal in mind, to convince everybody that he is the Christ and that he is God. We took a look at three more of the absolutely certain signs of the end of the world, according to St. Robert. The two signs which accompany the Antichrist, the preaching of the two witnesses, Enoch and Elias, and the Antichrist's persecution, and finally, the destruction of the Antichrist. We saw that Enoch and Elias are still alive. They're coming back during the reign of the Antichrist to oppose him with preaching miracles to convert the Jews who will finally become Catholic, also to convert Catholics and, or, that have been duped by the Antichrist and heretics. They'll be killed and laid out in the streets of Jerusalem. After three days, they'll be raised from the dead and assumed into heaven. We saw that during the savage persecution of the Antichrist, all the evil men in the world will be enlisted in the army of the Antichrist. St. Robert thinks the greater part of this army of the Antichrist will either be made up of barbarians rising from the land of Magog, or else he thinks the army will be extremely brutal and cruel because the men from Magog are pro- proverbially noted for being savage. We saw that the, the land of Magog runs from the Danube River to China. We saw this persecution will be so violent that all public religious ceremonies of the Catholic Church will totally cease. Benediction, exposition, vespers, holy sacrifice, the Mass. All public ceremonies will cease. Finally, we saw that he'll rule the world for three and a half years, and while attempting a blasphemous imitation of our Lord's ascension into heaven from Mount Olivet, we saw that St. Michael will slam dunk him into hell. This has basically been a book report woven out of quotes and paraphrases of St. Robert Bellman's work on the Antichrist. If it seems difficult to understand to some degree, well, there's a reason for that. It is. 
Uh, remember that prophecy is only st- understood completely in its fulfillment. Why do we spend two weeks on this? In the first place, we're not doing it to be sensational. It's part of the church liturgical year. The church has placed this topic before us. In the second place, we live in a time where there's such massive error and heretical confusion surrounding us. It's spewing out of the radios, out of the TVs, and all kinds of books. And in the third place, because for the past century, the popes have given us a pretty fair warning that we're living in a time which at the very least is a type of the great apostasy, if not the real thing. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we see the first thing is we don't want to start imitating Chicken Little. We need to remember that God's in charge. He knows what he's doing. He loves us. He knows exactly what he wanted each one of us to live. So what does he expect of us? That we stay in the state of grace and do our duty in our state of life. We need to be serious about the commandments. We need to be serious about our faith. We need to be serious about holiness. Say your rose and your three Hail Marys and your prayers every day. Wear your brown scapular. Stop sinning. Go to confession every two weeks. Make fervent communions. Put God first. And strive to become holy. Do your duty. It's pretty basic. Just do your duty.